The Leap is also supported by a generous gift from an anonymous KQED major donor. Just quickly, this episode mentions sex and some other adult themes, so if you've got kids around, be warned. Yes, I, I was the ugly duckling, the black sheep. My mother actually used to introduce me at family occasions uh, as the bad egg. We were a bunch of children, and she would introduce all of them, you know, at weddings. And then even though I wasn't the youngest, she would introduce me last as an afterthought. Oh, yeah, and, and that's my henny. My henny, yeah, my henny. Ugh, my henny. And, you know, it never got funny. This is The Leap. I'm Amy Standen. These days, Henny Cooperstein lives in a 400-square-foot apartment in Alameda, California. Geographically, it's about as far as you can go without crossing an ocean from where she grew up and from her family. Culturally, it feels even farther. I always knew that I was an atrocity that has happened to them. They used to cry, dear God, why did you punish us with this child? What did we do wrong? What were you doing that was causing them to say this? I was being a Henny. <laughs> I was being exactly what I am today. But in that context, it was not okay. That context was Borough Park, Brooklyn, the Bells, which is a sect of Hasidic ultra-Orthodox Jews. You can picture the women with wigs and long, dark skirts, the men with the wide fur hats, the little boys with shaved heads and curled sidelocks. And the funny thing about Henny's story, which is actually not a funny story, as you'll hear, is that this troublemaking misfit, who seems to have rebelled against authority from the get-go, was born into one of the most authoritative, rule-bound societies imaginable. Henny was always different. She would understand more about why this was when she got older. But when she was a kid, all anyone knew is that Henny was always chafing against the rules of this intensely restrictive society. I think by the time I was five... I was done. I was done with them. Every time my mother would say, all right, everybody get dressed, we're going here and there, I would just like (laughs) laugh in her face and defy her because maybe if you provoke, finally she'll like throw me out or give me up for adoption or maybe I'll start living with like this family in Manhattan who will send me to public school and I'll have a good life. Or I had all these ideas that... If I continue to misbehave, something will change. And there were no shortage of rules to break. No TV, no radio. Henny was prohibited from talking to anyone outside of her sect. Even making eye contact with people from other Hasidic sects was forbidden. Looking at the Christmas tree lights that hung in her neighbor's windows, Henny was told this could burn her eyes out. The English language was off limits. Like other Hasidic kids, Henny was raised speaking Yiddish. But she was always picking up little snatches of English from conversations she heard on the street, studying billboards in her neighborhood, anything she could find. My father's accountant once called the house. Hey, may I speak with Eli? And I would say, he's not available. May I take a message, please? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I had such adrenaline from those few words for, like, weeks. I had such a rush. As far as she could remember, Henny had, as she describes it, this insatiable need for sound. But in her sect, music was the province of men. Henny wasn't allowed to play an instrument or to sing, so she had to be sneaky about it. I would get punished for stealing the cordless phone, hiding in my room, and making music on the keypad. She can still do this. 
Yeah, that's my favorite. Wait, is that an actual song you were just playing? Mm-hmm. It's a song that they sing when the bride and the groom first walk into the wedding hall after the ceremony. I can play it for you here. Uh, four siblings, two brothers, two sisters, and she says it was pretty clear what the arcs of their lives were going to look like. Her father prayed three times a day at the synagogue. Her mother's job was to run the household, keep everyone fed and clothed so that her father could fulfill the family's spiritual obligations. And Henny loved this spiritual side of Judaism, but as far as she could see, it was off limits to women. At services, she and the rest of the women sat upstairs in a screened-off balcony. The balcony had a fence with peepholes about the size of an M&M, and they were spaced about more than an inch apart. So you're standing sideways, you're poking one eyeball through, but unfortunately, you can't get to the front of the balcony because the front row is reserved for the wives of the rabbis. When the rabbi's wife would go to the bathroom, I'd be able to rush and take a peek and look down, and it was really fascinating. I loved looking down and just watching the men because I felt like they had something going that I couldn't access. I wanted to experience what they potentially were experiencing. They were completely involved. They're wearing the prayer shawl. They're wrapping things around their arms, on their foreheads. They're kissing it. They're touching it. They're moving. They're shaking. They're rocking. They're, they're totally going at it. They come home and they're sweaty. They've really given it all out. I wanted something. Why am I locked upstairs in the balcony in the 17th row, mumbling from tiny little book that I don't understand anything anyway? I didn't feel anything. Henny always wanted to feel something, to do something other than what seemed to her like meaningless rituals. What she lived for was her Hasidic all-girls camp in the Catskills, a place where, because there were no men around, she and the other girls could actually sing. After she graduated from her religious high school, she headed to camp for the last time. Well, so you're 18, you're singing this in camp with girls, and you're also harmonizing. And you're trying to see how many harmonies you can throw in, and then, you know, the hair on your arms just stand up. And all you want to do is just stop the world and just do this all day long. I knew that the moment I would be out of camp, life would hit me in the face. I also knew that I would be coming home and they would start hitting me with the marriage prospects. And that's exactly what happened. A few weeks after Henny came home, her mother had an announcement. So she said, there's a few things we heard about him that makes him sound like a viable prospect. First, he knows how to tell and hear a good joke. Okay, hooray. The next thing is they inquired and he's not a smoker and you know how your father feels about that, so that's good. The third thing is his grandmother and my grandmother were classmates in Budapest before the war. Score! (laughs) That's it. What else? I mean, you can't ask for more. The families had never met. This whole thing was set up by a matchmaker. On Sunday, they all came together in Henny's family's dining room in front of a bottle of seltzer and a plate of rugula. So both parents, 
the boy and the girl, we all sit around the dining room table, conference style, and the adults exchange chit-chat pleasantries. Boys and girls never bother, like, even looking at each other, you know, some peripheral peaks. After about 15 minutes, the parents made an excuse to leave the two teenagers alone. This was the first time Henny had ever been alone with a boy. And the conversation was intensely awkward. And he says he asked her for her name, which, of course, he already knew. Somehow, in the next 11 minutes or so, we managed to discuss how many children we wanted. Do you, do you want 12 or 15 or 16? And I said, I think I'm good with 12. That was pretty much it. My parents came in and just pulled out some kind of liquor I never even knew they had. They said l'chaim. And the next thing I knew, I got a bracelet and a kiss on my cheek from his mother. Henny had always felt and been treated like there was something wrong with her. And the choice of this guy seemed to validate that. Based on my reputation, they just went with the first one that would take me. And that that turned out to be a very, very disastrous relationship. We absolutely hated each other from the first hour. In Henny's wedding photos, they look like strangers. Her new husband is smiling genially, but Henny looks frozen. She's wearing a beaded white dress. For much of the ceremony, she was concealed behind an opaque white veil. Her auburn hair is neatly combed and shoulder length. She would be shaving it all off the following morning. In the weeks leading up to her wedding, Henny had taken a course to prepare her for her marital responsibilities. But about the most mysterious topic of all, the wedding night, she knew almost nothing. The last of the class is a one-on-one lesson. And it's a crash course. And in that crash course, the rabbi's wife told me, all right, now let's talk about the night of the wedding. The first thing you need to do is take two pieces of paper and cover the mezuzah on the bedroom doorpost. Okay, got it. Next thing you need to do is roll up towels and put it around the window shades. No light should leak in. Okay. Next, you're going to ask him to open the zipper for your gown. And I looked at her and I didn't... I mean, I've been getting undressed my whole life by myself. It didn't occur to me that this was um, scripted foreplay thing. I, I just, I wasn't following. Henny and her husband followed the checklist, more or less, and then he went into the bathroom, as directed, to change into his nightshirt. She says he was in there for an hour. And he finally emerged from the bathroom, and he comes out, and he sits down on his bed, and he said, I'll be very honest with you, I got a little bit of instructions, but I don't understand So it would be really helpful if you tell me the instructions you got and maybe we could try to piece it together. Henny says it took them four months to figure out how to have actual intercourse. The first night it worked, she got pregnant. She gave birth 10 days after their wedding anniversary. Five months later, she was pregnant again, but miscarried. A few months after that, she was pregnant again. Did you ever get to the point where there was any pleasure, like anything felt good? Mm-hmm. 14 years of me laying there and waiting till he was finished, as the rabbi's wife instructed me to. Until now, Henny had been taught that this was the main purpose of her life, to produce children, as many as possible, for the sect. Each one was to be breastfed for two years, or until she was pregnant with the next one. 
Huge families were a blessing, a spiritual fulfillment, a mitzvah. But no one had ever told Henny how babies were made. She'd never had sex ed. She didn't find out until a postpartum visit with a secular doctor after the birth of her second child. Wait a minute. Babies don't come because you're praying and God grants you a gift? Babies are happening because of the checklist that you fumble in the dark with? Then the doctor did something amazing, something utterly taboo in Henny's culture, something that violated the most basic rules that governed her life. He offered her birth control. Henny was 22 with two young children. She wanted a break. Immediately, she said yes. And I took it for nearly four and a half years. What happened was after four and a half years, he organized a prayer circle for my fertility. And I needed to do something. I had to act quickly. So I just, I stopped taking the pill. And probably like six weeks later, I got pregnant with my third child. But this period of not having babies, of being able to leave the house with her double stroller and explore, it was a revelation. I used to go to Macy's. I did everything. I used to just, yeah, I lived it up. So this is my favorite memory. I was pushing the double stroller with the big diaper bag. And it was a Friday morning. I was going to the butcher to get some stuff to, to cook for Shabbat. The butcher was right across from the Brooklyn Public Library. Now, you never walk on the side of the public library. You never do that. But Henny was already leading a double life. So on this momentous day, she didn't just walk by the library. She walked into it. Eventually, she even got a library card. She started sneaking books home at night in her diaper bag. This is how she learned English, book by book. In November of 2008, Henny gave birth to her fourth child, a girl named Miriam. But all the while, she was secretly reading, studying, expanding her world. And then one day, she got a call from her children's school. I got a call from the school principal about my son. He was eight and a half at the time, and the principal said, something's off with your kid. And I said, what do you mean off? Well, he, you know, he's like awkward, he's strange, he... He comes into the classroom and he doesn't wait for anyone to look at him. He starts telling jokes. This didn't sound all that odd to Henny. In fact, it sounded a lot like the kind of kid she'd been. Her rebellious streak had always had a bit of awkwardness to it. She often felt unliked, misunderstood. She could get overwhelmed easily. These problems were now cropping up in her son, too. He had sensory problems, reading comprehension. Eventually, Henny ended up at a neuropsych evaluation at NYU. The doctor sits down and he says, so let's talk about what services can help an autistic child. <laughs> Just like that. I did have this two-week grieving period, like most parents, and then it hit me. The next kid was exactly like him. That was Shiffy, Henny's three-year-old daughter. And when Henny thought about it, her baby, Miriam, at seven months, was already showing some strange behaviors, too. She was flapping her hands a lot. She held her body stiffly. When Henny thought about this, she realized that three of her four children seemed likely to be on the autistic spectrum. This diagnosis was devastating. But autism was also about to open up Henny's life in a dramatic way, set it on a new course. Henny dove into the services that were available to her. She hired speech therapists, occupational therapists, 
signed her kids up for special ed classes. She knew that her husband wouldn't approve of any of this, all this interaction with the outside world. So she arranged all the appointments while he was at his afternoon prayers. I kept the therapies from like 4.15 to like 6, so that he wouldn't know. And one day, three months later, he walked in on the speech therapist leaving. He chased her down the block, all the neighbors saw, waving his fist and his face was red and he was screaming. The next day, I got a call from the agency saying that they terminated the case. My first thought was, how am I going to get the kids help? Because it was astounding. My daughter started vocalizing and words were emerging and she was exposed to something called music therapy, which was really, really cool. In my head, the sequence was like this. The credentialed professionals are the ones who are doing all of this magic. If I want to do this magic to my children and I can't get it by way of these professionals, then I need to be this person. And I owe it to my children to learn how to do this. So wait, what's the next step? Wait, where do you learn how to do that? Right, college. Now I've seen this building on the street on top of the grocery store that said the word college on it. So one of the you know, next days, of, uh, in the next week, I walked past it, and my knees are shaking. I walk into the building. I'm all excited and have this adrenaline rush. I run in. I go up. It's on the third floor. And I said, hi, I'd like to enroll and sign up. The library membership, the birth control, these were transgressive enough. But now Henny was secretly enrolling in college. Jewish women's college, yes, but still way off limits. After she fed and put her kids to sleep, she was getting babysitters to watch them while she snuck off to night classes. Finally, she had found something she didn't want to rebel against. She loved school. She did well at it. Then, after her first semester, her husband found out. He was furious. She had violated the laws of their sect, and he wanted her out. He filed a protective order against her. On March 27, 2010, Henny was escorted out of her home, alone, without her children. That night, I actually didn't know what to do, so my brain just said, walk, just keep walking. It was freezing, it was really cold. So I went to the park eventually, and I took a nap in the park on the bench. Henny was still breastfeeding her youngest child, Miriam, who was a little over a year old. Her biggest concern was that her milk was drying up. I just kept imagining, you know, every three hours, okay, it's feeding time. Okay, it's feeding time. Okay, it's feeding time. And then 7 o'clock in the morning came. Okay, the kids are waking up. Oh my gosh, it's 8-11, the bus is coming. Who's making their hair? Henny was 34. Her children were 12, 10, 5, and 15 months. And she was without them for the first time. I just didn't know who I was. What are you when you're walking around on the streets and your routine is not tied to your children? And your entire life you're groomed to be that And when you are not that, who are you, or what are you, or why are you? Henny was too embarrassed to go to the kosher soup kitchen that she knew of. For a few days, a friend snuck her food, but she was hungry, cold, and desperate. And then she had an idea. That's after the break. 
Where we left off, Henny had been kicked out of her apartment. She was sleeping on a park bench, cold and hungry, until a light bulb went off. And then it hit me. Maimonides Hospital. It's right nearby. Every hospital has a Beaker Cholim room. And there's free food for the people who are sick in the hospital so that their loved ones can eat tuna sandwiches while they're sitting and doing the shifts. So I walk up to the hospital and I walk into the Beaker Cholim room. You know, they have these number locks on the door and then outside the door it has a numerical value of the number lock written out in Hebrew letters. I get into the room and I start eating, you know, a sandwich and I found some apple juice. And a couple hours later, I went back in again. I'm eating again. And this time it was already at night. They had stocked it with like turkey sandwiches. And this lady that I had met earlier, she was there again. She goes, oh, yeah, who are you here with? I'm here with my mother. Who are you here with? So Henny broke another rule from her upbringing. She lied. She told the woman, I'm visiting my aunt. Being really pious, I had to make this lie, you know, level out. So I went up to the seventh floor and I start looking for all the Jewish names. And I walk into the first room that had a Jewish name. I knock on the door and the person sitting next to the patient on the chair, I ask them, I'm here to sing for the patient. Is that all right? And they said, sure. And I started singing. Sang two, three songs, and I went out from the room. And then I went downstairs to visit that lady's mother. That woman Henny had met in the visitor's room was anxious to get home and start cooking for her family. But she didn't want to leave her mother. Henny said, you go home. I'll take care of her. I'll check in on her. Um, I'll do some singing with her. I'll check in. I'm staying up with my aunt, but I'm going to keep coming down every hour if that makes you happy. Go home. So there I am, and I keep running back and forth between looking for more patients with Jewish names and singing for them, and then running back and forth downstairs to this woman's mother. And eventually she fell asleep, which was great. And when night came, I sat down next to this uh, lady, the old lady from this this community member's uh, mother, and I stretched out on that pull-out chair, and I fell asleep. And in the morning, she came by to visit her mother, and she goes, how was it? I said, oh, she, at 2 o'clock, they did this, and then her blood pressure went down, so that was good, and I gave her a full report. She was over the top excited. She was so happy. She just wanted to know how much longer I was going to stay here with my aunt. If I can, you know, check in more and more on her mother. And she already made some calls the next day to her family saying, you don't need to come because I have someone who can do another shift. So then it hit me. I can do this. I can actually sleep on these pullout chairs. We've got this. I have this. I've got this figured out. I ended up doing this for six months. They would announce on the intercom system, singing lady, agitated patient, room 1104, and I would run up to the agitated patient to 1104, do some singing, and that was it. 
One day, Penny says, she sang to a woman who had had a stroke during childbirth and was believed to be brain dead. She watched in amazement as a tear ran down this woman's cheek. That was when I knew that I was doing something with music that is going to be a career. There was going to be something that I was going to do with this. I didn't know it was a, there was a name. I didn't know that there was such a thing as a career. I didn't know that a career was an option for me. Her future, she saw for the first time, was not in Borough Park. It was not among the Hasidim. There is no return. It's over. It's over. In Henny's apartment in Alameda, there are musical instruments everywhere. There's a piano in the living room, a guitar leaning against the piano bench, tambourines on the walls. In a bookshelf to the left of the piano, there's a photograph of a woman and four children standing in front of the entrance to the New York Aquarium. This is uh, the last time I saw them. Uh, she's married now. And this was my baby, who is eight now. Who's that? That is me. I don't recognize you at all. Well, I was 100 pounds heavier, <laughs> wearing a wig. Henny's kids are 19, 17, 12, and 8 years old now. They still live in Brooklyn with their father's family. Henny says she's supposed to hear from them once a week, but she never does. She showed me dozens of legal documents, letters of appeals to judges, accusations against her husband and her family, years of paperwork in the legal battle that has so far failed to give Henny custody of her children. You know, like when you drive and you have the windshield in front of you and you're able to see the glass, but you're also looking out at the road ahead of you and you're doing both at the same time. And every day the children are in my face and I have to actively look past them in order to see the road ahead of me. So it's, it's, it's an intentional act to balance both, because otherwise I can't move forward. In 2010, soon after Henny got kicked out of the house, something happened that would bring her closer to her kids, even when she couldn't see them. She was diagnosed with autism, too. It explained so much, all those years in school and with her family feeling like an outcast. The way her skin felt so sensitive to clothing her amazing recall for music, the way she always knew what chapter and verse in which a line of prayer could be found. She just always felt like she was on a different wavelength than everyone else. It was something that was a long time coming, and it was, it was the icing on the cake of my life. There was just, it was just a session of validation. For some people, an autism diagnosis might be bad news. But Henny very much prefers her wavelength. It is the quote-unquote neurotypicals that she feels sorry for. I feel like neurotypicals have a very sad existence because they're all consumed with peer pressure, with what is everyone else thinking, how can I go to a bar and pick up another person. So they come and they actually, before they leave the house, they, they coordinate how they want to be seen. So they stand by the mirror and they fix their outfits and then they go to the bar and then they have this whole pickup line script that they use. Which strikes me as a little unfair. I mean, simply not having autism doesn't make you a mindless conformist. But Henny is more sensitive to conformity than most. 
After all, conformity was the iron rule of her childhood. You refer to the rabbi for everything, including what you should name your child, what days of the week you should have sex, who you should marry, what days of the week you're eating or feeding your children, exactly the menus. Everything is highly coordinated. Henny says it's her neurodiversity that made her a rebel, that allowed her to leave the culture she grew up in. So last week you were a little scared of book one. The autism, the love of music, the pride in her own neurodiversity. Henny has woven a life out of these strands. You're good, you're good, you're taking charge. I like what I'm seeing. Today, Henny is a piano teacher. When I visited her at her apartment in Alameda, I got to watch her with her students, whom she teaches via Skype. They're all on the autistic spectrum. Good, look at those changes. Look at you. All right, do it, stick with it. Perfect. Keep going. This boy is nine years old. He's not verbal, but he makes a lot of sound. His mother keeps gently returning him to the piano bench, placing his hands on the keys. The C's together were perfect. Let's keep going. Every now and then, he'll stop to communicate something by pointing out letters on a card that his mother holds up. I'm afraid to play with two hands. That's what he typed last week. Henny helped develop this technique. She's co-authored a book about it. And basically, the idea is that you should teach with the understanding that autistic kids are already musically gifted, that they just need help expressing that gift. And when you watch Henny teach, you see this whole other side of her. The sarcasm is gone. She's sweet. She's cajoling and so patient. Yeah, we're not playing. I want to talk to you. Remember I was telling you about Soma's joke? Remember Soma's joke about the erasers? Erasers, the boy spells out on his letterboard. Exactly. Thank you. We have to make mistakes because the people in the eraser factories have to have jobs. Okay? That's why we make mistakes. It's the Henny her children might have known. Maybe one day will know if Henny is ever able to be with them again. I give it my all because for me, this is giving the kids everything that I have hoped that someone would have thought of giving to me, but also what I fantasize about someone potentially giving to my children. If they don't get this kind of education, they're going to be in need of so much more support in adulthood. Henny believes they need this now. She wants to show them that autism is a gift, that they don't have to follow the rules of the culture they come from. That's what her work now is all about. By at least putting out this method and refining it so that it spreads globally, even if I'm not the one delivering the service, it will reach my children. That's The Leap. I'm Amy Standen. And I'm Judy Campbell. There are lots of photos of Henny on our website, including of her wedding day. Go to kqed.org slash the leap. Music for this story came from Nick Dupre, Chris Cullen, Seth Samuel, and Henny Cooperstein herself. The piece was mixed by Katie McMurrin. Our executive producer is Joanne Wallace. Special thanks to Sonia Shaw. And if you like the episode, there are lots more on our website and on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, we'd really appreciate if you left a review of The Leap on iTunes. It makes a big difference in getting word about this show out there. As always, we love to hear from you. The Leap at kqed.org. Thanks for listening. Leaping lizards. 
wasn't born to fly, Lord, Lord, I was born to green. So circle your buzzers over the yawning deep. I bet all I got against. 